Before we jump into our passage in Habakkuk this morning, I'll pray for us. Our Father, I thank you again for gathering your people together. I pray that over the next few minutes as, uh, as we dive into the book of Habakkuk and take a look at your word there, I pray that you would use it, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, that you would say what you once said, that you would have each of us hear what you want us to hear, that you would shape us through this message and through this, this scripture to look more and more like Jesus, Lord, and I pray that uh, it would be a blessing to us uh, today and a blessing to you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. That's a poem by Langston Hughes. It's called Tired. It was written in about 1930. So that's 90 years ago. 90 years ago, but it feels as though it may as well have been written today. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And sometimes it feels like we've been left waiting and watching without end, like We've been left to cling to any little tiny glimpses of victory that we can find around us, but only to continually be let down by all the brokenness in the world. And it can be hard not to grow tired. It can be hard, and we can begin to lose hope that a better world lies ahead. I know this is true because I struggle myself with hopelessness. I struggle myself with cynicism. I struggle myself even with despair at times. And in today's passage in Habakkuk, the prophet makes his second prayerful protest, as we looked at the first one last week, and then God answers him again. And in God's answer, he gives Habakkuk a vision that I think, as as Langston Hughes wrote, the vision, it takes a knife and it cuts the world in two so that we can see the worms that are eating at the rind. And it's there that we get to the bottom of what's eating this world alive and we find the cure. And we gain the strength and the hope to endure through the waiting. So if you want to turn with me to Habakkuk, we're in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, uh, verse 4, for the time being. I'm going to read through this, and you can follow along. It'll be on the screen also. Habakkuk is now questioning God again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and he is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. Which I think there's like a sermon in there by itself. The Lord answered him. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. There's a lot here, and there's a whole lot that we could take from this passage, but I want us to first see how God here is exposing an error that lies in Habakkuk's question, and then how he begins to answer the right question. See, after the prophet's first protest that we looked at last week, asking God to do something about the injustice in Judah, within God's people, God responds by telling him that he was going to send Babylon to punish Judah for all their injustices and idolatry and sin. And so here, Habakkuk is protesting again, and he's like, whoa, God, like, the Babylonians are even worse than Judah. Would you really have your people die by their hands? See, it seems that God's going to obliterate his own people and tolerate injustice from the Babylonians. And both of those things seem very out of character of God to Habakkuk. And so God says, he says, look, write this down because you're right about who I am. I am holy. I am just. I am the rock which you called me. You can build on me. And you can rely on my everlasting promises. And the vision is for all injustice to come to an end and for creation to be restored. But what you're missing is just how pervasive sin and injustice is around you and in this world and in you also. The question isn't, why do I tolerate injustice? I don't tolerate justice, and I'm going to show you that. But the question is, how can you, who are also unjust, live? See, in in chapter 2, verse 4, God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. This is the cutting the world in two to see what's really eating at the rind, so to speak. The proud will come to an end. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous, like that's those who rightly remember God and who live in right relationship to him and to all of his creation, the righteous will live by faith. But the proud or the puffed up, they are the worms, right? They are those who forget God and who live by their own understanding. And so the vision that God gives says that the puffed up and the proud, they'll, they'll come to their end, surely, And if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. But in 2 verse 5, we see a further warning and a little bit more perspective for us. It says wine, which can also be translated as wealth there. 
Wine or wealth is a traitor. It's an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. In other words, wine or the wealth and the prosperities of others and FOMO, the fear of missing out, will try and lead you to lose trust in God. It will lead you to step outside of a right relationship with Him and all of creation as you begin to put yourself first, as you lean into your own understanding. And this pride that comes up in us and lives in us like a disease is alive in every single one of us. So that good and beautiful and kind world that Langston Hughes wrote about and that Habakkuk was looking forward to and that we all want It is really promised and it is really good to look forward to, but the pride of men stands in the way. Judah was puffed up. Babylon was arrogant. There's pride in Habakkuk. And so you better bet it's alive in you and it's alive in me as well. God continues this cutting the world in two to look at the worms with what follows the after, the, after what we just read, these five woes. And it's where he expounds, he kind of expounds on uh, this answer that he gives to Habakkuk's prayer. And it's here that we really begin to see just how pervasive and how grotesque even our pride and sin and injustices really are. So we're going to look at these woes. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. That's the first woe. It says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. And in this woe, God is uh, calling out the unjust economic practices of Babylon. It's how they extort money from the poor. And we're not just talking about individuals, we're even talking about on a more national level and how they deal with the nations, which means Babylon kind of like comes in like a lender in a poor neighborhood. They give loans to these nations with high interest that they can't pay. And they do this to the poor as well, right? And then they just leave, they just plunder, they take everything they can from them and they leave the whole population in poverty and ruin for Babylon's own gain. But the promise here is that those who have been plundered will rise up and they'll plunder for all the violence Babylon has done to humanity and to the earth and to the city. And while God is calling out Babylon here, I think we should also note the change in language because Babylon's not actually mentioned, right? The language is a lot broader. It's woe to him who. I think it begs the question, like, how is our own pride and our own idolatry and our own sin exposed even in this particular woe? Like, you and I, we may not rule Babylon, but we all have our own little kingdoms, Right? We all have our little kingdoms that we try to build, that we try to preserve. Not to mention that we are all here part of this one nation and that we rule over together. The question is, have you and I then 
heaped up what is not our own? Have we plundered the nations for our own prosperity? Have we even plundered the earth itself? That's what Babylon is accused of. Is that something we could be accused of? Let's move on to woe number two. Habakkuk 2, 9 through 11. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. This woe is condemning the gathering of wealth unjustly. It's kind of building on the woe that was already mentioned. Getting financial gain received by cutting off people from their people. Like among other things, the Babylonians enslaved the people that they conquered, right? They stole from them. They stole their land. They stole them from their people. They stole everything from them. And they dehumanized them. And they profited from their work, setting themselves up as higher, setting themselves up as better, setting themselves as more valuable. But God says that everything built, much of it on the backs of another, will come undone. The stone will cry out. The beam and the woodwork will respond. I think we read of the cruelty of such empires. We think of being dragged away with literal hooks in their mouths and the awful things we know that the Babylonians and people, these powers did, and we cringe. Again, though, maybe we've stopped talking about Babylon. Like perhaps this woe is not just to him who gets evil gain for his house, but to all who get evil gain for their house. Like, is it also us? Could we be lumped in with, these offensive, with this offensiveness? Could we be standing on the shoulders even as of our ancestors who received evil gain from their, for their houses? Should we ask how America's history of slavery and the church's complicity at, at, at the very best in that has contributed to our personal gain? I don't at least think that we should assume that it hasn't. Could we even still be gaining today at the expense of others? Like what about the products that we buy and the things that we enjoy? Where do they come from? Who is making them? Do we care? Does God care? I think it's nice that we donate money to help the poor around the world, but what if the money we spend on a daily basis is actually keeping things the way they are? Something to consider. Woe number three, Habakkuk 2, 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This woe again is addressing building on the backs of others and the sin and the violence with which the powerful like increase themselves. But verse 14 deserves our full attention. It's the center of this poem. These woes are written in a poetic form, and this is at the very center. And in that structure, it becomes the central point. God is saying something here about himself. He's saying something about who he is. And whereas the prideful 
shed blood and build their cities and their wealth in sinful and unjust and violent ways, their power is really, really small. Their power is actually really small, and their glory is actually very little compared to God's. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise. That's the central thing that we got to take from this poem. Babylon or any other oppressor, any other prideful and proud person will not go on forever. They're finite and small. They have a little amount of power and it will end as the knowledge of who God is squelches their fire under the floods of His glory. That's good news. And we need to hang on to that and we're going to come back to it in a second. Woe number four, Habakkuk 2, 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Babylon is a nation and Babylon is a people who would laugh and would mock the Me Too movement that we have going on in America today. Instead of calling it out as an injustice, they would instead celebrate the idea of getting somebody drunk or drugging somebody in order to take advantage of them, in order to rape them, or even to, just to watch them expose themselves and make a fool of themselves and shame themselves. It's not even just in physical nature either. Like This behavior is just at the ground level, and it comes out and bears fruit in how Babylon dealt with the nations. They kind of get them drunk on riches and power, right? Only to watch them expose themselves, their weaknesses, and plunder them and devour them. That's Judah's story. God says that his wrath will come around to them, that they will expose their uncircumcision, uncircumcision, which is to say they will be exposed as not being gods, right? And they will reap the shame they've heaped on others. This is an easy question and also a hard question and will probably make many feel seen. What would we find in your search history? Who are you? Whose are you? Do we not do the same thing and watch them and expose, watch them expose themselves and shame themselves and glory in it? What would be revealed if the cover was pulled back on each one of us? There's one more woe, and then it's over. The last woe, Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no 
breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And God ends his answer to Habakkuk right there. Abruptly in verse 20. And that again demands some extra emphasis, some extra attention from us in this poem. After talking about how Babylon's gods are speechless and they have no breath and that they're fashioned by men and they're they're silent before men, God says in contrast, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is alive. Those idols are not. And he's holy. And he's on a throne in power. And he's doing a work that is far greater than we understand. And he will fill the earth with his glory. And so to anyone who would walk in pride or puffed up like Babylon, or any who think of him as just another silent wooden idol that they've created for their own pleasure and their own convenience and their own purposes, the message is clear. God will not be demoted. God will not be dethroned. The proud will come to an end, and only the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk wrote his vision down in this poem over 2,500 years ago. Langston Hughes wrote his poem 90 years ago. And here we are today, with the world broken in two, finding that the worms are still eating at the rind and that our pride and our sin are part of the disease. We can't hide it from them. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We can't fix ourselves and we can't fix the world on our own. We just cannot do it. So Habakkuk came to God with questions, with his struggle to trust God in light of the injustice going on around him, with his difficulty to remain hopeful, with his flawed perspective and a desire to live. And God splits the world open, shows Habakkuk the depth of the sinful, prideful, idolatrous hearts of men everywhere. And he makes that promise in chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and the righteous shall live by faith. 2-4. And this, he's revealing that he indeed is just and is still doing the restorative work that he has always promised to do. He's bringing justice everywhere and equally toward the purpose of restoring righteousness and saturating the earth with his glory. And that those who live believing that he is who he says he is and that he's doing what he said he would do, will live. And this is the good news that I want us to hear this morning because those five woes are pretty tough. But where Babylon in that first woe and all the proud, where they become corrupt lenders and plunder the poor, Jesus paid the debt of poor sinners with his life so they could live forever with him. And where Babylon in the second woe and all the proud build a nest up high, valuing themselves above all, Jesus, who is God and is above us, stepped down from heaven to dwell with us 
and to reveal our true worth as image bearers and children of God. And in Woe 3, where Babylon and the proud still today shed the blood of thousands to increase their power and to build up their own kingdoms and their own glory, Jesus shed his own blood on the cross so that we could be called holy and so that we could enter the kingdom of God that will overcome the kingdoms of the proud. Where Babylon and the proud who use wine and drugs and power to intoxicate the weak in order to rape them, in order to shame them, and in order to expose them for their own pleasure. Jesus blessed wine to bless a newly married couple. And he established the Lord's Supper where we drink the wine to remember his very real presence with us, his people, his church, his bride, whose shame he has covered with his own blood and where Babylon and the proud create idols on end that have no breath and cannot speak and then they serve them as captives to the detriment of themselves and to all parts of creation Jesus created everything there was nothing created created without him and rightly so all creation will bow to him as king and lord And he will restore everything so that it is good. See, he's overcoming the proud. And he's demonstrating a better way. There's just the question for us of how you will be overcome by Jesus. Who is the glory of God on display? Who is saturating the earth with the glory of God? Either you will be put out Like a fire squelched by the flood of his glory, the proud will come to their end. Or you turn to him, increasingly submitting your whole life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ, who in his life and death and resurrection has overcome the world and demonstrated his humility, his love, his mercy, his power to save and to restore the world. The righteous live by faith, like trusting in Jesus because in him we see even further than Habakkuk got to see in his vision. And in Jesus, then, we have proof that the ultimate vision of a good and beautiful and kind world is still coming to fruition. Jesus is the cure. I'm going to put up a picture. You may have seen it before. You guys familiar with this? What do you see? Anybody want to shout it out? Old lady, young lady, pretty lady, haggard looking lady, right? You can see two things in this picture. They're both there. Maybe if you stare at it long enough, you'll be able to see both. It's a beautiful woman, an ugly or older, tired. I thought it was a witch. I don't know what it's, whatever. In much the same way, I think this passage contains something beautiful for us to hope in. And that's God's restorative work. But there's something ugly for us to see also. It's our own pride and our sin and how it eats the rind of the world. Now, I don't want, I don't want you to hear all that stuff we just went through. I don't want you to be exposed in order to shame you. But I want you to come out of hiding and to find the redeeming love of Jesus. 
Listen, you who have been saved, who are children of God, you who follow Jesus, have been called into the work of redemption. You've been invited to be an ambassador for Christ, to to be a part of doing restorative work in this world as he does restorative work in your own life. And so the the call to action this morning, like this picture, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's to keep looking at the beauty of Jesus and his good news for you and for this world and then to let him do the work of exposing the ugly pride and sin and corruption and injustice that you participate in. And then to give it to him and let him redeem it. You'll need help doing that because we have blind spots and we need each other. That's why he gave us each other to help us sort out all this ugly. And the pride that exists in us makes that a hard thing to do too, helping each other in this. Because, I mean, it's easy, right? It's easy to have conversations about big issues like abortion and racism and things on a bigger like national or world-type scale. It's easy to talk about injustices out there. But it gets really touchy when you start talking about the injustices that are in here. When we start asking questions of how we spend our money or what we drive or where we live or where we go to school or what we, how we shop and where we shop and what we buy and who benefits and who suffers because of the, those types of decisions, that kind of stuff gets touchy. And that's just a little handful of things we could talk about. It's touchy, but I... I want you to look to Jesus and see his beauty and let him expose the ugly. I want you to enter in with each other. And I want you to prayerfully talk with each other in your, your DNA groups, and your MCs, and your family, with your friends, and pray for humility from Jesus. What pride and sin and idolatry is evident in you and how you live that you need Jesus to overcome. See, ours is not a faith that chases personal wealth and prosperity. It's a faith that embraces poverty for the sake of God's restorative work. And it'll take your whole trust in God to follow him. It's like selling everything you have to buy a field where there's a treasure hidden in it. You can't hold on to both. So this morning, I just want you to remember that Jesus doesn't deal with you, though, like Babylon deals with the poor. He deals with you as God answers Habakkuk's prayer. He's patient. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he can be trusted. And I believe that as you and I submit to Jesus in faith and let him overcome our pride and our sin, we'll begin to see the immediate world around us start to bear marks of his restorative Our hope and strength only grow as we increasingly give our lives over to Jesus, trusting the truth about who he is and what he's doing and who we are over our own understanding of those questions. And then we watch him use our story to contribute to the restorative work he's doing in the world. If you're not following Jesus, you'll not only likely lose hope in a truly beautiful future, But trusting in your own way and leaning on your own understanding, you'll end up contributing towards more brokenness and more corruption. May we all see Habakkuk's vision of a world that is saturated with the glory of God. Where we are in right relationship with God and with one another and with all of his creation. 
where there's good and there's beauty and there's kindness. And may we faithfully cling to and submit to Jesus as he overcomes the pride of this world with the knowledge of the glory of God. We're going to move into a time where we can respond to God's word as we do each week at Redemption. And there's a few things that we're going to do, and the band will come up and they'll lead us through this time where we can take communion. We come each week and take. You can come down either one of these side aisles. You can take a piece of bread. You can dip it in the wine or the juice. And when we do this, we're remembering with the bread that this is the body of Christ that was broken for us. And when we take the wine or the juice, we're remembering the blood that he shed for us. And as we do this, we remember that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he would do, that he's the savior we need, that he's the hope for the world. And we're proclaiming that truth to one another in our action and we're remembering it together. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and to take and to eat and to believe and proclaim and remember. You can also give your offerings as uh, your tithes and offerings as an act of worship. There's a table in the back with a basket and other ways you can give are listed back there as well. And then the band's going to lead us to sing and to worship our God together. And you can pray where you are. You can grab somebody to pray with if you need to, but you can also just sing your heart out to the God who's come to save us. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to continue in worship. Our Father, I thank you for I thank you for Habakkuk's vision or the vision that you gave Habakkuk. I thank you that like in it we, we see that uh, when we're struggling and when our perspective is, is off and when it's, we're frustrated and we don't know what's going on, like we could trust that you're a good father and you do things like you pick us up, you put us on your shoulders, you let us see the bigger picture. You don't, you don't cast us away, you bring us in on what you're doing. And I'm thankful for that. And you, you help expose the, the parts in us that are holding us back and holding the world back, our pride, our sin, our, our idolatry. And you draw us into yourself and you redeem all that stuff in us. You've done this through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You've made a way for us to be just through the justifier, Jesus. And you've actually invited us into your work. Your restorative, redemptive work. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for hope. Lord, give us more and more of it as we see your work in us. Lord, help us to dig that stuff out. Help us to have the, uh, the courage to just turn to you, to confess where we're wrong, to turn to you, let you expose the stuff in us, come out of hiding and see what beautiful things you can make out of the dirt and mess. In Jesus' name, amen.